Thank you, Karen, and those sweet praises. And I want to thank all of you that have prayed for me this week and the weeks before this for this lesson. Appreciate that. I'm standing in the need of prayer. Good morning, ladies. Good morning, and uh, thank you for coming to Bible study. Thank you for being here today. I so appreciate your faithfulness to study God's Word, even when Ezra has seemed a little difficult and hard to understand at times. And uh, today seems like one of those times. It uh, was a little difficult. Uh, I'm Deb Haygood, part of Team Ezra, and as we uh, look at chapters 9 and 10 today, we're going to finish the book of Ezra. And as it comes to a close, we see that the message, the task of uh, the book of Ezra is complete. The exiles, the remnants, have returned uh, home to Judah, and their worship, their uh, relationship with God has been restored. First of all, by rebuilding the temple, we've said uh, time and again that that was necessary for proper worship. And then secondly, by um, prayer and by reading and studying the Word of God. Studying the Word of God so they could live their lives accordingly, so they could live obedient to God's Word. Uh, next week, the story of God continues as we go into the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to see the uh, leadership of Nehemiah as he leads a third group back to Judah. And also, we're going to see uh, his leadership as he directs the people to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, and also as he directs the people in reordering their lives to follow God and to worship him. So we're going to see more rebuilding and more reform. Today's lesson is also about reform and restoration. The people of God reform their lives so that their relationship with God, their fellowship with God can be restored. And this happens as the people of Israel listen to God's word taught to them by Ezra. Now this reform in chapter 10 is troubling to us. And it has been for thoughtful Christians throughout history. You know, there's no easy answer here. But as we study it carefully, uh, we can understand it a bit better. So that's what we want to do today. And let me say a word about study. Richard Foster, who wrote the uh, book, Celebration of Discipline, some of you may have read it, he makes a distinction between studying the Word of God and between devotional reading of the Word of God. Study is that um, deep look into the Bible with the high priority on understanding. Uh, we're asking, what does this mean? We want to understand it. It's interpretation. Devotional reading, on the other hand, uh, puts a high priority on what does this mean to me? It's application. Now, both of these things are important, and we need both of them. Um, if we just understand the Word of God, we know the Word of God, but we never apply it to our lives, then it does nothing to deepen our relationship with the Lord. Um, as well, if we just read the Word and apply it to our lives, but we don't really understand what the Word of God means, then we run the risk of applying it incorrectly. So that's what we want to do today. That's what we try to do in this Bible study, to understand what the Word of God means so that we can apply it to our lives correctly. And we're going to look at that, thinking about that, in chapter 9 and 10. So let's turn to 9, verse 1. And as you turn there, uh, I want to tell you a little story about Finley, um, my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. I'm trying to give all the grandkids equal time, so 
a couple weeks ago, I took Finley to the stock show, and uh, it was great. But the bad news, it was on a Wednesday. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but on Wednesdays, or at least this Wednesday, all the animals had gone home, and they were cleaning out the barns so that new animals could come that night. So as we walk through empty barn after empty barn, Finley's saying, Grammy, where are the animals? Where are the animals? And I said, well, they've all gone home to where they live. Okay, now don't be too sad. We did see a cow being milked, and there were a few uh, baby animals, and we saw them as well. So it was fine. And then we went to the Children's Museum, and it was all good. And then on the way home, about two hours later, we're driving to my house through my neighborhood, and Finley suddenly from the back seat says, I don't know. And she was very frustrated and, and upset. And I said, well, what don't you know, Finley? And she goes, I don't know where the animals live. And I kind of laughed, and then I looked at her, and I see she's looking at all the houses as we drive by, and she's thinking, where are the cows and the sheep and the pigs? Where do the animals live? And I started talking to her about a farm out in the country and the cow, and I realized she's just two and a half, and she's a city girl. She's not been to a farm. She hasn't seen animals on a farm. She doesn't know about a farm and animals on a farm. And so she couldn't understand when I said, um, they have gone home where they live. That's a little bit like I was. The first time I read chapters 9 and 10, I'm like, whoa, God, I don't really know what's going on here. And so this is hard for me to understand. But I think as we study it, we begin to know a little bit better and we can understand it a little more. So let's begin reading verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, Okay, let's stop right there. This is Ezra talking. He's talking in the first person. And we met Ezra last week. He is the one that brought the second group of exiles back to Judah. And he did it in a very organized and prayerful man. He, in a prayerful way. He is a man devoted to the Lord. We saw him fasting and praying. But the most important thing we learned about Ezra is that he was devoted to the Word of God. He was devoted to the Word of God, to studying it, to obeying it, and to teaching it. It was the most important thing in his life. And so as this uh, chapter 9 opens up here, four months have passed and Ezra has been teaching the word of God to the people. And it says that the leaders have come to, come to him. Now, who are these leaders? Well, these are leaders that were in place when Ezra and the exiles returned. Uh, and let's remember that the first set of exiles came 80 years before this under Zerubbabel. So a lot of time has passed. This is second or even maybe third generation. These leaders, they've been born in Judah. And uh, it seems like maybe a lot of uh, teaching the word has not happened. That hasn't happened. You know, we ended chapter 6. They were in the temple celebrating Passover and the feast, and they were worshiping God with joy. And then there were 60 years that passed before Ezra came last week. And so during that time, this next generation doesn't seem like they've been listening to God's word very well, and they've kind of gotten astray. And so the leadership, after hearing God, Ezra teach, thinks, Wow, our lives are not quite matching up to this. And so they come to Ezra with this report. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. And then people always say mosquito bites and gigabytes. And anyway, 
these, these uh, countries around them. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So what is going on here? What is this report? Well, the Israelites um, have intermarried with foreign women. Now, the foreigners are not the problem here. The problem is who they worship and what they worship. They worship not even a who. They worship false gods and pagan idols, man-made things. And their practices include temple prostitution, sacrificing children. They do not believe in the one and only true and living God. Israel calls their God Yahweh. They do not believe in Yahweh God. And so um, the, we see that the men have intermarried, and this is a problem because in God's word, he told them not to do this. This was a direct disobedience of his word. Uh, his law prohibited the Israelites from intermarrying. Why? Because they would turn their um, husbands away from Yahweh God and to worshiping their false gods. And we see, I put on your verse sheet, one of the places where we see this law is Deuteronomy 7. And I want to remind you that Deuteronomy is Moses reminding the Israelites um, of God's laws before they went into the promised land. They're on the banks of the Jordan, and he reminds them of all of God's laws. So let's read this. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. He's saying uh, this is for your protection, not to intermarry, because you will be led astray. And in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, the same list of peoples and countries, very similar to this one that we just read in Ezra 9. And so it makes me think that Ezra had been teaching the Israelites the book of Deuteronomy. Um, we know that this does happen. The prophets had talked about this intermarriage, and Solomon is a perfect example of someone who married foreign women and then was led astray. In 1 Kings um, 11, it talks about how he worshiped God only half-heartedly. So we know that what God says about this um, actually can happen. And I have a map, if you want to put it up, Douglas. Um, I want to thank Lori Egner for finding this for me. Um, it was hard to find a map of um, Judah in Persia. Um, and I want to point out to you with my handy dandy she also gave me this i love it okay do we see edom down here those are the edomites and here's moab the moabites i want you to pay special attention to that we're going to talk about moab later here's ammon the ammonites um down here would be egypt up there samaria we've talked about that before i wanted you guys to see where that is and then right around here somewhere is jerusalem Okay, here's these um, neighboring countries. Now, you know all of this is called the Trans-Euphrates because it's west of the Euphrates um, under the rule of Persia. But these same sort of people groups, these pagans, Gentiles, are living around Israel. And this is who they're intermarrying with. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this. How sad is that? The priests and the Levites, the very people who should be teaching them God's word, instead have been disobeying God's word. And as they have uh, disobeyed, they've led 
others astray with them. You can see why studying God's word is so important. It can keep us focused on God instead of those things that distract us from him. Psalm 119 on your verse sheet, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And then verse 34 of that same uh, psalm says, Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Knowing God's word helps us to uh, obey him. And, ladies, we must teach our children the word of God and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews. We must teach the children God's word, that reason for our faith. We want to talk to them about Jesus, teach them God's word. Deuteronomy 6, if you look on your verse sheet, this is Moses again saying, These commands I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Take every opportunity throughout your your day to teach the children the word of God. We are only one generation away from slipping far away from God. We must pass this on to our children. Teach them the word of God. So let's go on in verse 3 and see the reaction of Ezra. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. We see here that Ezra's reaction is one of heartbreak. He is grief-stricken. He is emotionally distraught. Um, this tearing of his beard and his hair and his clothes. Tearing his clothes is an outward sign of his inward severe sorrow and deep mourning. And that word appalled can mean horrified. And it says he sat. And I wondered as I read that if this shocking, sad uh, news had just weakened his legs to where he had to sit down. Have you ever been like that? Uh, maybe you've been with someone that's been like that. Some very sad and um, shocking news comes to you, and it's like your legs just give out. You have to sit. Um, or maybe someone with you, you catch them as their legs give out. I think maybe this happened to Ezra in his grief. And so he's sitting there in extreme sorrow, and let's see what he does next. Verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, that would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. So Ezra is at the temple. It's the evening sacrifice. And the first thing he does, his first action is to pray. And he comes before God in humiliation and humility as he kneels and he raises out his hands towards God, totally helpless, totally helpless. Um, he prays to the Lord. And we read this wonderful prayer of confession. And this prayer can be a great example for us as we go to God in confession. So I want us to look at all the different parts of it. Verse 6 says, um, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you. He, first thing we see is he comes to God in humility. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, <clears throat> our guilt has been great. And he goes on to talk about the punishment they've suffered. So we see 
First thing that Ezra does in his prayer of confession is to admit guilt. And he quickly switches from I to our and we. He identifies with the um, sin of Israel. Even though he's not guilty of this specific sin of intermarrying with foreign uh, women, he knows that this sin has consequences for the whole nation of Israel. So he identifies with them as an Israelite with this national guilt. Uh, Part of confession is agreeing with God that we are guilty as accused, acknowledging one's disobedience to God's word, agreeing with God. That is part of confession. And as I read Ezra's prayer, I ask myself, am I ever heartbroken over sin? Am I ever um, mourning over sin? Heartbroken over my sin, over other sins, over the sins of my country? Or instead, do I have a judgmental attitude about the wrongdoing of others? You know, when Jesus was uh, teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, we read this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That mourning there is referring to mourning over sin. Do you ever mourn over sin? Then we go on and see some more of uh, Ezra's prayer here in verse 8. And now he's going to remember who God is and what he's done. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. First thing he remembers is God's grace. God's grace in um, leaving this remnant and giving them this temple, this firm place. They've got a foothold now so that God can actually brighten their eyes. I see a glimmer of hope for Ezra as he remembers God's grace. And then he goes on in verse 7. From the days of our forefathers, nope, sorry, verse 9. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He remembers God's presence with them. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He remembers God's kindness as God has worked his providence through these foreign kings so that they could come back and rebuild the temple and have new life and freedom as they worship God. And then he goes on to say, and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. He remembers God's protection. And this wall is not a physical wall, not the wall around Jerusalem, but it's God's protection surrounding them like a wall. Ezra has no excuse to offer God for the people. His only hope comes from remembering God's grace and his presence and his kindness and his protection, who God is and what he's done in the past. Then we go on to verse 10, and we're going to see more confession here. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands that you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, and this is quoting um, scripture, this is what the prophets and what the law has said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruptions of its people. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance now we see Ezra confessing the specific present sin that they have committed which was taking foreign women as their wives 
Um, in confession, we need to be honest and specific with our sin as we go before God. And this specific sin, um, Ezra points out, it is uh, directly disobeying the clear word of God. God had said, do not do this, and they had done that. And he says, what can we say? You know, we have no excuse. The law was to protect us from turning away from God. Breaking it weakened Israel spiritually, as well as material, as materially as God takes his hand of favor um, away from them. So the consequences of this sin are disastrous. It can bring disaster. And then we read the last section of this prayer, verse 13. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. In this section, Ezra recognizes God's mercy and God's righteousness. His mercy, this is a picture of God's mercy throughout the Old Testament. And then he also remembers God's righteousness. Even though God has been merciful, they have continued to sin. And God is the righteous God. He's holy, and they are unholy. They cannot even come before him in their guilt. Uh, God is righteous, and he cannot stand um, before evil. But yet, another part of God's righteousness is uh, involved in salvation. And Ezra would know this. And we read this in the... Uh, Proverbs 51, I mean Psalms 51:14. This, by the way, is David's psalm of confession after he's been with Bathsheba. And it says, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. God's righteousness is involved in salvation. And so under the covenant, God is righteous when he delivers his people as they call out to him. And Ezra would know this. Ezra ends his prayer, do you notice, without even one plea of forgiveness. His hope is on God's mercy and God's righteousness. As we go um, on into chapter 10, verse 1, the story continues right on. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jeiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So you take courage and do it. We see here that the reaction of the Israelites is sorrow and weeping. They are distraught as well. They recognize the seriousness of their sin as well. And then Shechaniah stands up and he confesses for the people of Israel and gives Ezra this plan. 
You know, Ezra is their respected priest and leader. And have you noticed he said nothing to them yet? But by his actions and his prayer, they are moved to sorrow and repentance. Um, his godliness and his commitment, uh, what he is, who he is, and how he's acting, speaks more loudly to them than any scathing lecture could have done. There's a quote from Augustine. Augustine was um, a great man of God in the 4th century. He, too, spent his life studying the Word of God and wrote many books that have influenced Christianity throughout the ages. And one of his quotes that I love says, One loving heart sets another on fire. One loving heart sets another on fire. Ezra's loving, devoted heart for God set the Israelites' hearts on fire. I want us to think for a minute. We already have done that with Karen's uh, praise this morning. But think for a moment. Um, someone in your life that had a loving heart for God. And their loving heart set your heart on fire for God. Maybe um, it was serving him or following him, praising him. I can think of people in my life, um, my grandparents, my mother. I can think of women in this room that their loving heart for God has moved my heart to serve him, to praise him, to study his word. One loving heart sets another on fire. Think about that. So the Israelites all agree that they have sinned against God and they desire to return to him. So their reaction is sorrow and repentance. Shechaniah has come up with this solution. Seems very harsh, but this is a crisis. And he encourages Ezra to rise up and he says the people will support you. So let's read verse 5. Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. So Ezra does just what's been suggested, and they take this oath, the priests and the Levites and the people. And taking an oath was very serious. Um, if you broke an oath, it was punishable. It, it resulted in punishment. So taking an oath was not done lightly. It was serious. And... All are agreeing with Shechaniah and supporting Ezra. And they want to do this according to the law. And then we see in verse 6 that Ezra um, leaves the temple. He goes to the home of Jehoanan. He doesn't eat or drink as he continues to mourn over Israel's unfaithfulness. Why is Ezra continuing to mourn? Because he realizes their disobedience is great. And there is no easy answer to this. Whatever happens, the consequences are going to be exceedingly painful and hard, whether it's the wrath of God or whether it's separating families. There is no easy answer. It's going to be difficult. And so then he sends out this edict that we're going to um, read, verse 7. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. And anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly 
of the exiles. So what's happening here is uh, Ezra sends out this proclamation to all those that are in the cities and towns outside of Jerusalem who aren't here um, seeing what's taking place. And he tells them to come. And they have three days, which is enough time, I guess, to get there. And it says if you don't do this, then the penalty is is severe. You're going to lose your land and you will lose your uh, legal rights as an Israelite. And uh, Ezra has the authority to do this. One, because he's got the backing of the leadership and the officials. And two, because he has the authority of King Artaxerxes. Do you remember last week in chapter 7 we talked about that? King Artaxerxes gave him this authority. And so uh, let's see what happens. Verse 9, within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin that's another name for Israel, had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, this, by the way, is December in their calendar, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. And the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. Ezra tells them to confess to God their sin and do his will. Return to him. Separate yourselves from your foreign wives. The solution for Israel is a covenant of separation. And to return to God meant to put away, to turn away from the foreign gods and the idols that they have been following or might follow. Put those away. They recognize the seriousness of this sin, and they recognize that the solution is serious and harsh as well. And um, they have come in this rain. I love it. They're, they're distressed by the situation and by the rain. And you might laugh, but then we had this great rain today. Picture yourself standing out in that rain, how cold that would have been. And so it's a hard situation, and so we're going to see what they come up with here in verse 13. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman woman, come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Then in verse 15, we see the names of these four men, and it says they opposed this. But verse 16 tells us, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. So we see here that there's a little discussion going on, and they come up with this plan. They say, we can't just stay here. This is serious, and we need to take time. And besides, it's pouring down rain. So they come up with the plan. Let's go home. You pick some leaders and officials that's going to investigate this. And then one by one, the men who have married foreign women will come back at set time, and they'll bring with them elders and judges for their time as well. And we'll work on this until the wrath of God turns away from us. You know, I think that this speaks so highly of Ezra's leadership style. You know, he just doesn't bully them. He's not ramrodding them. Instead, they've come up with the solution, this covenant of separation. And they discuss 
how to carry it out. And then Ezra delegates people to be in charge of this investigation. And it says that they um, all decide to do this. There's consensus. There's unity. Now, we don't know about these four men that opposed it. We don't, we're not told what they opposed. Maybe they wanted it done more quickly. Maybe they had another plan. We don't know. But we see that there was unity as they come together to do this. And I think to myself, what a change in Israel. What soft hearts they have uh, towards God. What soft hearts they have for the word of God. This is so different. Do you guys remember when we studied Isaiah? They scoffed at the word of God. Even though the prophets told them, here's what God, they did not listen. They laughed at that. But these Israelites, this remnant of God, they have a soft heart towards the Lord and towards his word. And they wisely decide to take enough time to investigate it carefully. And I think by bringing leadership, judges and elders from the towns of each of the men accused, they are really interested in being fair and being just. They want to do this according to the law. We finish up that verse on the first day of the 10th month. They sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So it takes three months to investigate all of these um, people. And why does it take so long? And I have a couple of reasons. We know that they wanted to do this according to the law. And we know that... Um, the law did make some provision for divorce. We see that in Deuteronomy 24. It was not God's plan for marriage. It's never God's plan for marriage. We've seen that back in Genesis 1. But to protect the women, um, they were given a certificate of divorce. And this was because some of the Jewish men were just putting out their Jewish wives and left them um, without any recourse. But this certificate of divorce gave them some rights. So there was some of that. We also know that maybe um, that they had brought dowries with them into this marriage. Maybe there was some discussion on the dowries, what the men would give these wives as they return home to their countries and their families. Also, we know children are involved. And so they might have given them a monetary inheritance um, to take along with them for their children. And then another reason, I think, they investigated it was to see if any of these foreign women had given up their belief in their pagan gods and instead believed in the Lord God Almighty, the one and truly living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh God. Because we know that foreign women who believed and worshipped God were allowed to marry Jewish men. Uh, we have a couple examples of that, and I want to talk about that. So I think if any of these women had believed in God, they were allowed to stay in Israel and to worship God. One example of a foreign woman in the Old Testament is Rahab. Now, some of you may be familiar with her story. It takes place in the book of Joshua, chapters 2 and chapters 6. Now, Joshua is after they've crossed over um, into the promised land, and they're going to drive out the Gentile pagans as they take the land that God has promised them. And the first place they go is Jericho. And Rahab is a Gentile who lives in Jericho, and she believes in God. Yahweh, God of the Israelites, and she believes in him just from the stories that she has heard about God. So when the Israelite spies come to Jericho, she hides them, and then she helps them to escape. And when Jericho falls to the Israelites, Rahab and her family, they are spared, and she goes along with the Israelites. 
She, by the way, is listed in Hebrews 11. Now that is what we call the hall of faith. Um, the people of faith in the Old Testament are listed here. And ladies, there's only two women listed and one of them is Rahab. And I've got that on your verse sheet. We're not going to take time to read it, but it's Hebrews 11:31. Because I want to go on to our second example, and that's Ruth. Now, Ruth was from Moab. We pointed that out on the map. Um, Moab was a Gentile country uh, south and west of Israel. And uh, you can read this story in the book of Ruth. Two Jewish men went to Moab, and they took their mother, Naomi, with them. And they married Moabite women. And then the uh, two Jewish men died. And their mom, Naomi, wanted to go back to Israel. So she tells her daughter-in-laws, go back to your homes and back to your gods. One daughter-in-law goes, but Ruth says, no. No, don't ask that of me. In Ruth 1.16, she says this, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, Ruth believes in the one and true, only living God. God, Yahweh God. She believes in him. And so she goes back to Israel with her mother-in-law. And she marries a Jewish man, Boaz. And they have a son, Obed. And Obed is the grandfather of King David. So in Matthew 1, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you see Ruth listed. And you also see Rahab because Rahab was the mother of Boaz. So I think some of these foreign women may have believed in God and then they would have been allowed to stay. Verses 18 through 43, we're not going to read those. This is a list of all of the men that had taken foreign wives. And the list begins with the priests and then goes on with the Levites. And then in verse 44, we read this very painful, tragic conclusion here. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. You know, this was a painful and difficult decision to separate from their foreign wives. And it was not a good thing. It was not a good thing. But it was better than the other choice. It was better than the alternative because the alternative was to risk losing their spiritual identity as followers of God. As these foreign women stayed with their foreign gods, the, they would have begun to worship those, and then that would have gone on until pretty soon they were like Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans had intermarried, and so their worship became a mixture of pagan idols and also God, and we said that was not pleasing to God. God's first commandment is to worship God and God alone. So to go the second route um, would be to cease to exist as the people of God. And from these people was coming the Messiah, Jesus. It was important for them to stay true, following God and God alone. You know, repentance means to turn away from disobedience and to turn towards God. To turn away from what's distracting us from God and to turn back towards him. So to repent and to turn back towards God meant for them to turn their backs on the foreign idols. Repentance means return. And true repentance is always linked with a changed life. So what's the outcome for the Israelites? 
the outcome was fellowship with God restored. Because we remember when Vanita taught um, chapter 5 a few weeks ago, she read that promise from Zechariah, the prophet that was encouraging the people. It's on your outline, Zechariah 1.3. It says, if you return to me, I will return to you. So fellowship with God was restored. So as we come to the end of this study, what have we learned? You know, the first thing that jumps out at me is that sin is serious. And the consequences of our sin can be severe and painful and difficult. And like the Israelites, we are standing before God guilty. We have been rebellious. We have turned our hearts away from him. We have disobeyed God's word. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But like the Israelites, we too have hope. We have hope of a restored relationship with God. Our hope is in Jesus, who died on the cross, who shed his blood to cover our sins, to pay the penalty of our disobedience. Um, John the disciple tells us in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we come to that place that we realize we need a Savior, and we put our faith and we believe in Jesus, then God sees us through the blood of Jesus, and we are forgiven, and we have an eternal relationship with the Lord, and we are heaven-bound, and nothing is going to change that. But ladies, you know that as we're on this journey towards glory, we make mistakes, we mess up, we let things distract us from God, and we need to um, make confession. And we have hope, once again, in Jesus to confess and to receive forgiveness. Um, John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can go to God in humble confession, return to him, and receive his mercy and his forgiveness. Sin is serious. It gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. But we have hope. And our hope is in Jesus who offers forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a merciful God. You are a righteous God. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on the cross. Thank you Father, that we can have an eternal relationship with you, a restored relationship with you. Oh, Lord, these verses and these chapters are difficult, and I pray that you would continue to give our minds and our hearts understanding of your word. Father, that we might apply your word, that we might walk out of here obedient to you, because we love you, Lord. Thank you so much for your mercy, your grace, your protection, your forgiveness. We love you. And I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.